You shall rise before the aged, says the book of Leviticus, and show deference to the old. Well, I hope I always feel young enough to rise and humble enough to know whom to show deference. Because I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Season 4 interlude, interview with Rabbi Beryl Wine. Well, I know everybody's excited to get past 1967. Not that it's an event that ever really gets old, but we've spent a good amount of time, and I have here one last episode to talk about 1967 from hopefully a different and exciting perspective. I have the great privilege and honor to be sitting with someone who, for me, is in many ways a personal role model since I began this journey. I'm here with Rabbi Beryl Wine. You may know him as author, historian, rabbi, teacher. He's currently the rabbi of Beit Knesset Hanasi and Rechave. He's the director also of the Destiny Foundation, which is committed to many of the things that I see to be important to Am Yisrael, and has agreed to give me just a little bit of his time. Shalom, Rav Wine. How are you doing today? So I know that we're catching in the midst of a busy day. So with your permission, I'd actually like to drive right in. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so my first question for you is a personal question which is when I was looking over your bio, there's a whole life journey, which I'm sure you could tell many stories about. But the question that came up for me, and when I say personal, it's not just about you, I guess it's about me too, which is how does it come to be that an Orthodox rabbi, son of a rabbi, son of an uh, immigrant, immigrant father, born, if I'm not mistaken, in 1934, right? how does it come to be that you became the, uh, the Alta Rebbe, if you will, of Jewish history? It's not exactly the track I think a lot of people would have expected. Well, uh, I didn't intend to become an Alter Rebbe of anything. <laughs> no one ever does, right? Uh, well, I can't say no one ever does. There are people who think that they're born for it. Well, I've, really, from my earliest memories on, I've been an avid reader. I, I read uh, mostly uh, secular histories in, in uh, high school. I was, I'm a Civil War buff. Really? Um, World War I buff. I've read uh, hundreds of biographies of people. And uh, I remember that uh, one day in the yeshiva, I must have been 15 years old, I was discussing with my Rebbe a point that was being discussed over the centuries by uh, Rabbeinu Saad Yagon and Rabbeinu Usher ben Yechiel, the Rosh. That a Rosh is uh, 14th century Toledo, Spain. Rabbeinu Saad Yagon is 9th century Babylonia. And they're having this discussion. And when I finished uh, talking to my uh, Rebbe, and I went back to sit down to learn with my Chavrusa. It struck me for the first time, who are these people? I mean, you know, he said a rush. So, so we, the rush is printed on the, on the in the back of the Gemara, so we know. But He's one of the guys in the back, it's Chashu. But he had to be a person. Right. So who was he? And uh, the yeshiva then had a very, the yeshiva in Chicago had a very large library. And it was an official library, and we had a librarian, mm-hmm. uh, Mrs. Mishkin. And I went into the library one lunch hour, 
I wasn't that great at sports, so the other guys were outside shooting baskets. And I went into the library and I asked her uh, if she had any books that could help me understand who uh, Rabbeinu Sadia was and who the Rush was. And she had such books, both in Hebrew and in English. Really, that, that hooked me. I would go in the library almost every day, and she provided me with books. It's a tremendous merit that she started you on such a journey. Well, she was a very fine woman. She really was. So it was this sense that these are real well, people. Well, I was like, I think she liked me because I was probably her only customer. <laughs> so it was really the, the sense that the, the Rosh, Rav Sadia, and everyone in our great right. chain. Who are, are they? Yeah. What happened to them? Certainly after the Holocaust, I wanted to know how such a thing could happen. Mm. What were uh, six million Jews doing in Eastern Europe? And how did, uh, how did we have a uh, Jewish uh, settlement in the land of Israel and that was fighting for a state? And how did the Jews come to America? I mean, these are all basic, uh, to me, they were all basic questions in life. Which hadn't really been discussed up to that never, point. Never, never was discussed in the classroom. My parents, like most Eastern European Jews, never discussed any of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yeshiva never was discussed. Though there was one course in Jewish history in the yeshiva, I was taught by an eminent historian and professor, but it was, uh, I think boring is a kind way of, uh, (laughs) it was absolutely uh, impossible to uh, have any interest in the subject. Well, having listened to many of your tapes and read your books, you succeeded in changing that for us. So, uh, and then I became a lawyer I went to law school, I became a lawyer, I practiced law for nine years. Then I repented and I went into the rabbinate. The tikkun. And uh, when I had my congregation in uh, Miami Beach, uh, aside from uh, teaching a Talmud class and a Mishnah class and a Parsha class, you know, which I don't mean to demean it, but those are the usual classes. Sure. Every, you know, every rabbi has to do that. Uh, I, uh, a few women in the congregation said they wanted a class for women. You know, I didn't know what to teach them, even though I come from a long line of women, but I really didn't know uh, <laughs> how to deal with it. And then I, it struck me that... Uh, in fact, it was this time of the year before Hanukkah. Uh, let's talk about Hanukkah, but not not to talk about it so much in halachic terms or even spiritual terms, but what was the story? What happened? And uh, I read the book of Maccabees and a few other things, and I started giving lectures you know, and um, the rabbinate has taught me that if you're successful with women in a woman's class and the w- women come home and tell their husbands, 
Their husbands are embarrassed that they don't know anything and that the women know. Mm-hmm. So from there it grew. They said, please, uh, you know, I expanded. And then uh, I became a Robin Muncy. So then I had a whole f- full-blown uh, series of courses and of lectures. And then somebody said, record them. I remember I had a series that I was starting, and uh, the, the women's class I never charged for. But the men's class, I said, you know, it was a $50 registration. And the $50 should go to the yeshiva that I then founded in Muncie. Mm-hmm. So about uh, 30 young, 30 men uh, uh, registered and paid the $50. Uh, say as a teacher, that's a big victory. No, no. Not. Nah? If, you, if you're in this business to get paid, you're... Uh, I wasn't talking about the money. I was talking about the numbers. You're, you're doomed to disappointment. <laughs> and uh, a number of them were physicians. They were doctors in the, in the local hospital uh, at made rounds. Doctors don't have a firm schedule. They're always on call. Mm-hmm. So after two, three lectures, uh, two of them came over to me and he said, you know, we didn't attend the third lecture. We had an emergency call to go to the hospital. And we paid the $50. So we're going to send our tape recorder mm-hmm. so that whatever happens, we'll hear the lecture. I said, that's more than fair. So they started recording the lectures. After a few weeks, the doctors came back to me and he said, they said, you know, we passed these lectures around in the hospital to other doctors, even to non-Jewish doctors. You have no idea how successful they are, how interesting they are. You should record everything. Let's make re- recording sessions uh, and lessons in Jewish history, etc." And that's really how it started. So now there are over a thousand lectures yeah, that are on the internet on every uh, age of Jewish history. And then I started to write on Jewish history. The, uh, my friend, uh, Mayor Zlotowicz of Blessed Memory, uh, the founder of Art Scroll. Uh, so he said to me one day, you know, right, we, we, they had a number of history books, sure. but uh, he said we could use a history book if you can, you know, write one. Uh, so I said I'm going to write the modern period, 1648, till I think then it was uh, 1980 or 1985. And I called The Triumph of Survival. Uh, the first history book I wrote longhand. The uh, women uh, at Art Scroll had a hard time reading my handwriting, which, to put it mildly, never was good. Apparently it was good enough. And uh, the... Uh, well, if there's money in the account, it's good enough, yes. Yeah, uh, I listen. Having, and, having used it to teach, you and, succeeded. And uh, so then he gave me a computer. 
And uh, well, then it was called the word processor. Yeah, yeah. And then I wrote a book on the Middle Ages, and then I wrote a book on the Classical Age, the time of Damarim and Tanoim, and from the time of Ezra. And then I wrote a book on uh, the 20th century faith and fate. And then, so then it snowballed, and it became, uh, you know, and then uh, I delivered lectures, and I wrote, and... Uh, so if, if I, I made two movies, uh, so all of, all of that, uh, did a, a biographical movie on Rashi and a biographical movie on the Rambam, on Maimonides. I mean, it's been a tremendous impact. I'm curious if along the way there were unexpected challenges for you personally or unexpected gifts, things that you found that you never really thought you would see. Well, I, I'm a very modest person. But uh, I didn't know that I had, uh, I didn't know that I was going to be that great a writer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that people would read my works or that people would publish them. But it, I've been very successful. I mean, I worked with Koran publications. I have books that I've written in Hebrew. I've written Svarim and Halacha and on the Parsha. Uh, I have... Uh, a book that Corin published uh, on uh, Treyasar, the Twelve Prophets, which I, I, uh, is widely used, and if I say so myself, an excellent book, uh, introduction to understand Nevi'im and prophecies, and, and then uh, you know, so uh, it it just started, and uh, I've been writing ever since. So success was an unexpected gift. I was here. Success is always an unexpected gift because you have no idea, you know, uh, what King Solomon said: "Shloach lach al Right? Cast mm -hmm. your bread on the waters. That's all you can do is throw it out there. You don't know what what will stick and what people will appreciate. And how about unforeseen challenges? What were things that? Well, that they you were didn't not expect? unforeseen, but I knew they would come. Like. Well, you have critics that say, you know, history, who needs history? And then you have professional historians that say, you don't have a PhD in history, mm -hmm. so how do you have the chutzpah to write a history book? Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, others who take a different view, because all history, when it's written, is written naturally with the bias of the author. There's no uh, purely objective history. It's actually where I want to go to next, uh, with your permission. So, uh, you know, so I, uh, but uh, it never really bothered me uh, what other people say. Mm. Uh, that, that is really, I think, one of... What do you think that is? One of the qualities that I always uh, treasure is that I really don't care. <laughs> that's just a tchunat nefesh, you think? That's, yeah, and it's, uh, that's something my parents installed in me. Uh, a great deal of self-confidence. I was only an only son. I was uh, always the youngest in the class, and the youngest in the yeshiva. I was always subject to, uh, I shouldn't say persecution, but to the... Uh, <laughs> the youngest gets a hard time. Yeah, to, you know, to the criticism of the older ones in the class, and, you know, sure. many of them resented. It was all sorts of things. I didn't care. I just didn't care. You know, I met a Jew on the street a few months ago, 
And he said to me, you know, I was in Shul Shabbat, and I heard what you said, and I didn't like what you said. So I said to him, I didn't like it either, but I had to speak, and you didn't. <laughs> it just bounces off. Well, right now, I mean, when you get to a certain age, Baruch Hashem, and, uh, you know, and you've, you've seen your life already, and Baruch Hashem, the Lord has blessed you with family, and you've also gone through a lot. You know, you'll be, Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan said that you have to stand up even for an old non-Jew who is uh, an illiterate because he said how many experiences this person must have had in his lifetime. Amen, yeah, that's true. So, uh, so that, uh, you know, you see things in certain perspectives. I really don't care. I really, uh, you know. Well, I definitely care what you think. And in, in a second, I'm going to want to hear your thoughts actually on 1967 as an event. Um, but first, I want to go a little deeper into what role you think that knowing history can or maybe even should play as a Jew. Now, give a little context to our listeners. I'm confident that you're familiar with, with Professor Yosef Chaim Yushami's work, Zachor, Jewish History and Jewish Memory. Yeah. Um, so, so for our listeners who may not be so, I pulled a couple of quotes out where he says that in the biblical period, the meaning of specific events was laid bare, as he says, by the inner eye of prophecy. This is the way we understand for Chazal, for the rabbis in the rabbinic period, he says, biblical past was known. The messianic future was assured. The in-between time was obscure. And, and frankly, they weren't so impressed by the Greco-Roman tools of history that were contemporary. Right? It never presumed history, not then, not now, to offer proofs for its truth. They were more interested in sort of telling the story of the past, the hermeneutics of it. Right? They had law. They had storytelling. They were trying to shape a community. And then comes this modern historical perspective, cause and effect, objectivity, like you alluded to in all its challenges. And um, it's unquestionably founded on a critical approach, you know, standing outside, looking at the events. So my question is, is that what benefit do you see in applying that critical lens to standing outside of our story when so much of the richest of the tradition we've inherited is specifically about being inside. You think a Jew needs to know I, history? I don't think you can understand Jewish history or you can understand Judaism or the Jewish people from the outside. And therefore, to me, most of the books that have been written on Jewish history are full of facts and knowledge, but they don't tell the story. Mm -hmm. They just don't tell the story because they're not in it. They don't put on film every day. They don't observe the Sabbath. You can write about the Sabbath in the most glowing terms, but if you don't observe the Sabbath, you don't get it. You just don't understand what's happening. I think that's true in, in general history as well. I said I was a Civil War buff. I went and visited almost every Civil War battlefield. Really? If you stand at Gettysburg and you stand on Little Round Top or on Culp's Hill, so then you have a sense. You can see Pickett's Charge in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. And there you have, you understand what they meant, the high water of the Confederacy and why when the, it was over the South, it was, uh, had no chance anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's true uh, 
So that's true in Jewish history also. Jewish history is the inside. If you uh, see, I had the benefit yet of uh, having Eastern European teachers. Mm-hmm. So they imparted to me Eastern Europe, right? So I sure. thought I, I have some understanding of what went on there. Before the war, even. Before the war, certainly. But uh, my grandchildren have no understanding. They just, you know, they can tell you, you know, this godel and that godel, but they don't get it. And, uh, okay, so that's just the way it is. Right. And the education that they get today is uh, almost uh, tailored that they should never get it. What do you mean? Because it's slanted. It's, uh, it's, uh, it portrays a world that never was. Mm-hmm. It creates uh, fictions, and therefore it makes it harder to deal with the realities of what is. I always say to them, if Eastern Europe was so perfect, how come there are three million secular Jews in Israel? Mm-hmm. who speak Hebrew, know Hebrew, they know some Torah, they live somewhat the Jewish life. Where did they come from? I said, did a spaceship land from Mars and deposit them? They came from somewhere. Now, what was the somewhere and why? I, why is a very hard question to answer anyway. But at least what happened? And if you get that uh, somehow straighten your mind, so it's much easier to deal with today and much easier to deal with secularism and uh, all of the current fads. To a certain extent, uh, we've seen this movie before. How do you mean? Greek and Roman culture for 400 years was a homosexual culture. Socrates said the greatest love was a man for a man. Okay, so once you know that, and once you know what Chazal said about it, and once you know that you survived that, and that you're able to say that that the individual has uh, choices and uh, abilities, etc., but that a homosexual society is doomed. So, okay, so there's a gay parade. There isn't a gay parade. You know, it's not, it doesn't go to the heart of the matter anymore. That's exactly what I thought I was hearing, is that the aside from the picture I painted of standing outside, which I agree with you, is, is not useful to a Jew, so to speak, who wants to be a Jew. But to actually understand the, you know, there's a saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. That, that like there's many cycles right. that there's cycles and there's ups and downs and there never was a perfect Jewish society there never was a society that was a hundred percent Torah observant there never was such a thing and if you uh, study uh, the uh, the Jews in Spain you see uh, assimilation and conversion before the Inquisition before uh, you know with things happen. We live in a world where people have choices and things happen. Therefore, the president doesn't go to the heart. Nevertheless, you have to see the overarching reach of heaven that somehow preserves us and guides us. That's that's the job of Jewish history. So this is actually a beautiful segue to my next question, which is that, um, you know, as, as I mentioned before, my introduction. 
in the Jewish story, we've been speaking about 1967. And there's a lot of academics standing outside looking at the impact of 1967 on American Jewry, on, on uh, Israeli Jewry. And uh, you may be familiar with the term of political theology that gets thrown around a lot, this sort of sense that suddenly religious thinking, which in the early days of the state, and frankly for many years amongst American Jewry, wasn't such a big part of the political organization and, and actions. You know, something that I personally think of as biblical thinking for Am Yisrael. I mean, the idea that religion should influence politics is hardly new for us. But I'm curious... Both, uh, what was your experience? I was a rabbi of Miami Beach. A number of things uh, occurred that made an impression on me for the rest of my life. It taught me lessons about Jewish people and about non-Jewish world. The first thing that was taught is in the two weeks before uh, uh, the Israeli Air Force struck, People came to the synagogue, sat down, and sat there all day. They didn't pray. They didn't say anything. They just sat there. As though that was their protection. Hmm. That somehow, because we all felt that, God forbid, the Holocaust would happen again. If you heard Nasser's speech. Sure. He's throwing everybody into the sea. He's killing everybody. So I saw a resilient uh, faith. And many of the people were not members of the congregation. And many of the people were not observant Jews. There were many, and I think there were people that never were in an Orthodox synagogue in their life. He just came and sat. It's like uh, there are no atheists and foxholes type of situation. That was one thing that made a great impression on me. Even though they themselves didn't feel personally threatened. That's right. Uh, they were not personally threatened. We were going to survive. Nasser was not going to come to Miami Beach. <laughs> though I think that would be a fitting punishment for him. But uh, uh we were not threatened, but we knew that if, God forbid, the state of Israel was crushed, then uh, Jews in America couldn't raise their heads, mm -hmm. just could not raise their heads. Mm -hmm. With all the protections of the American Constitution and of the American government, etc., but there was an innate feeling that we were gone. And we had the experience of the Holocaust when uh, America did nothing. Right. Then the second lesson that was uh, a, a foolish thing, but the, uh, the Israeli uh, consulate from in Atlanta said that uh, they, uh, we should try and influence our... Uh, congressmen, senators, that they should speak up and, you know, and ask, ask Lyndon Johnson to uh, send the American fleet or something. Something, right. And uh, they said one of the ways to do it was to get uh, the Christian clergymen to join with us. Now, I had nothing to do with the Christian clergymen in our neighborhood. But it was a beautiful... Uh, 
church on Pine Tree Drive. So I said, oh, I'm going to bite the bullet. And I drove to the church. And I asked to see the the minister, the pastor, I don't know what they called him then. And I spoke to him, and I asked him if he would join me in writing a letter to the congressmen of our district. And he was very curt and very cold. And he said, this issue does not concern me at all. And it should not concern the American government. It's not, in my opinion, a vital interest of the American government. Goodbye. Now, that was a revelation to me because I was, you know, I was a gung-ho American patriot. Civil War buff. And uh, I was certain that, you know, that the spirit of America would rise against the dictatorships and the totalitarian, and and I was a Cold War fanatic to defeat the, uh, the Soviet Union, and and here is this person who was supposedly a man of God, and uh, this is the response I got from him. So that soured me. Uh, and I've remained sour the rest of my life. In what sense? And you certainly can't rely on our so-called friends. But it strengthened me in my faith that the preservation of the Jewish people is up to the Jewish people and the Lord of Israel. And that is really the whole story. Now you have to, uh, we need all of the things that go along with it. Sure. That's always been our We need F-35s. We need all of that. But ultimately, ultimately you can't count on Trump and you can't count on Biden and you can't count on anybody, right? Ultimately, you know. Ain't no Amelia Shane. That's right. And that that strengthened me. That gave me, that gave me a great deal of faith. And then, uh, when the war came and the victory came. So I remember I was driving on Prairie Avenue in Miami Beach in my car. And there were, and then there came the bulletin that the old city had been conquered. And you heard the recording from the hotel. So I stopped the car, and I got out of the car in the middle of the street. (laughs) And I saw that there were 15 other cars that had that same reaction. And we all embraced and wept. These are I didn't know any of them. But Miami Beach was basically a Jewish city then. So we all felt it was a historic moment that somehow something had happened. Would you call it a miracle? Well, you know, uh, miracles, uh, the, the, Rambam, <laughs> the Rambam has a hard time defining miracles, so why should I uh, have an easy time? I would certainly call it one of the most unexpected uh, unnatural 
unpredictable events of our time. Because on paper it shouldn't have happened. But uh, you'll notice that in all wars there are things that shouldn't have happened that happen. In fact, in life in general, right? That's right. Hashem Hashem Shmo. So uh, God does things that, uh, you know, he doesn't ask us. He just does it. So, you know, so that you should get away with an escapade like that, you know, to fly the planes below the... Ra- Everything has to go perfect. Yeah. Like uh, the, when they destroyed the nuclear reactor in Iraq. 1981. So that has to go perfect, right? And there's no military operation that ever goes perfect. So in that sense, certainly it's miraculous. It's it's uh, you know, it's out of the ordinary. Do you think part of the miracle depends on how we receive it and what we do in response? Uh, no, I haven't spoken to God. Uh, God hasn't spoken to me in the last two weeks, so I don't know how to judge these things. We should certainly respond. Uh, now, what was the? Re- I think the response was positive. Uh, more for at least for a while. Mm-hmm. A lot of Jews felt Jewish. Feeling Jewish is very important. It's, uh, you know, before you, uh, before you want to make someone observant, you have to make them Jewish. Mm. Yes, to feel that, you know. So I think that happened. Now, before people coming to sit in the shul, afterwards, people yeah, standing yeah, and right. embracing in the street. Him, you know, and then you could wear a kippah in the street and nobody would touch you. Mm-hmm. From that day on in America, Orthodox Jews, all types of Jews wore kippot in the street. They could hold their heads up. That's right. They gave them a sense of uh, self-pride, of equality. Of, uh, that, 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 was a, that was a very important turning point. I think within the Jewish people, it gave Orthodoxy a great boost, too. In what sense? That the Orthodox felt. I mean, that I felt that uh, the, the wave of the future was going to be Orthodoxy. There's no, there's no question that demographically, uh, theologically, uh, psychologically, the rest were going to fall away, and they are falling away. We see that in front of our eyes. Yeah, it's a great sorrow. It's, uh, but again, that's history. Right. You know, if everybody that was had a connection to the Jewish people and to Judaism was counted as a Jew, there'd be 150 million Jews in the world today. Yeah, do you think we'd be better off? I don't know. You know, you're <laughs> asking. You know, you're asking God's mind. I can't. Uh, I ask you. But uh, I don't think we'd be better off. I really don't. The Lord blessed us. Right. The least amongst few, because, because we're so few, everyone counts. If there'd be 150 million Jews, you'd never get a minion from Minchamar. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so, with your permission, I have one last question. Um, you know, the, there's, the, of course, the famous saying by Santayana that um, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. I myself have become much more attached to something a little more organic. For Amisar, it was a beautiful quote from the Baal Shem Tov. It says that uh, exile flows from forgetting and redemption from remembering. So maybe a thought on what we can, what we can remember from history 
that can bring redemption just a little bit closer. We can remember what a special people we are. We can remember that no one has witnessed what we have witnessed over 3,700 years of civilization. We can remember that if our teacher Moses came back today, he would recognize us and we would recognize him, even though things and circumstances are far different. And uh, I think the main task is to instill Jewish pride, to be proud. I'm proud to be Jewish. uh, My Rebbe in the yeshiva used to say the most important bracha is Shalos Hanikoi. I'm special. Because I'm special and I have to behave special. I have to do this. I have to do that. I realize I have special challenges. I realize people won't like me because I'm special. I realize all of that. But that doesn't change the basic fact that I am special. And, uh, okay, so that's a matter of education. And that, uh, and we should remember that we have always been against the stream. Mm-hmm. We have always been on the other side. Avram Oivri, Shu Me'ever Echod, Kolo Olam Kulo Me'ever Asheni. We're always the naysayer. We're the only ones that say no. That's not a comfortable position. No, it's not. But that is our uh, our lot in life, and that is really what makes us special. Well, it's an incredibly important thing to remember that not just we're special, but that we have that task, as you said, of That's swimming right. against the stream. Okay, my friend. And I want to thank you very much, Rabbi Barawan, for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, folks who want to access more of your writings and your recordings can go to the Destiny Foundation, correct? Right. The, uh, we have the website, uh, the Destiny Foundation. Or you can go to rabbiwine.com. Excellent. I'll and put those in the show notes as well. Yeah. And thank you once again. I want to thank all the folks listening as well, especially those who give their hard-earned money to make this show happen, keep it free and widely available. I want to invite you to join them. You can go to my website, that's jewishstory.co, and in the upper right-hand corner, you see a button that says, Be a Patron. You can click on that for a little bit of per-podcast support. You can be in touch with me at robmikefoyer at gmail.com. Also, you can find me on Facebook at robmikefoyer. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network, that's thelandofisrael.com, for creating a platform that lets me reach so many people. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-S.org.il, for building an educational institution that gives me the privilege of teaching so many fantastic Jews. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.